If you have your copy of Scripture, we're going to be in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11 of 2 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing our series, What is a Healthy Church? We are pulling these marks of a healthy church from a book by Mark Dever called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. So that lets you know that there's nine marks. I may spend two sermons on the last one, which is church leadership, which we'll look at uh, beginning next week. Today we want to talk about discipleship and growth. Discipleship and growth. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me start by asking you a question this morning. How does a church grow? How does a church grow? You see, if if we ask that question to the average churchgoer, then their mind might immediately go to numbers, like numerical growth. However, shouldn't we be more concerned with what the Bible prescribes as growth, which is growing members, not just numbers. Let me tell you what we often see in churches today, or at least what has happened in many churches in the past. Someone who does not know Christ perhaps gets invited to some sort of meeting or a revival or an event, and at that event... They hear the gospel, and it sounds good to them. They are told of the free gift they can have of God's forgiveness for everything that they have ever done that was wrong. They are told of eternal life with God in heaven when they die. And it seems like the best thing that they could ever have, uh, ever have been offered to them. And they think, I'm going to sign up for that. And so they're told to repeat a prayer after someone, and they do that, and that is that. They become a Christian because God promised that if anyone confessed their sins, God would forgive them. And so they prayed and confessed their sins, and they're declared saved. Then in the coming years, they live a good life. Perhaps they're even considered a pillar of their church. They get involved in the church that pleases them 
where the sermons are short and exciting and to the point, and they're filled with good stories, great little anecdotes, and some moving illustrations. They don't really know the Bible all that well. And even though they may teach Sunday school, they could not tell you where most of the books of the Bible are even located. They have opinions about God, but they don't come from the Bible. They're just some stuff that they heard or they thought it up themselves. They think of God as forgiving as long as we just own up to our sins. And they know that Jesus and the cross are important. They just don't really know why they're important. Their conversion amounts to a decision that they once made, kind of like the decision of buying a new car. It was a big decision. It was a little bit scary, but just one that you have to make. Evangelism to them is what the paid staff does, and perhaps they may do it a time or two, like if the pastor forces them to do it. They may never join the church. They might come for a year straight and then miss a month or even two months, and they pick and choose what they want to be involved in, so why really join the church? They've seen pastors come and go, and so when a pastor wants to change things, they figure they will just wait this guy out like they have all the others. Because he will leave like every other pastor has left. Listen, these people do not grow as Christians. And it doesn't bother them that they're not growing. For some reason today, many people think that you can be a baby Christian for your entire life. They believe that growth is just for the super spiritual people. However, we would do well to remember that growth is actually a sign of life. When a tree is alive, it grows. When an animal is alive, it grows. Being alive means that you are growing. Unfortunately for some of us, we're growing in the wrong direction. But it means that you're growing, that you are increasing, and that you are advancing at least until death intercedes. A healthy church is characterized by having members who are serious about their spiritual growth. In a healthy church, people actually want to get better at following Jesus. So today, we're going to look at some questions. One, what does the Bible say about spiritual growth? Two, how do we spiritually grow as a church and individually? Three, is it spiritual growth? Is spiritual growth really all that important? And number four, what if we don't grow? So first, we want to look at what does the Bible say about spiritual growth or a biblical theology of growth? So let's look at what the Bible says concerning spiritual growth. Does the Bible even say anything about growth at all, spiritual or otherwise? Or are we just kind of obsessed with with um, progress in our lives. Spiritual growth is indeed a concern of the Bible. In the very first chapter of the Bible, God commanded the creatures of the land and sea to do what? Multiply. Genesis chapter 1 verse 22. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And God gave this same command and others to Adam and Eve just a few verses later in Genesis chapter 1, 
verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then a few chapters later, we read about God. He wipes out the whole world in a judgment by a flood. And guess what? The very first thing that God commands of Noah to do in Genesis chapter five, or 9, verse 1, the sons of Noah, God makes this command. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Later on in Genesis, God promises Abraham that the numbers of his descendants will be great and increase. And when the children of Israel go down into Egypt, into captivity, they multiplied and they increased in number. And that was a sign of God's blessing on them. And God blessed them again when they went into the promised land. And even when they were taken in the Babylonian captivity, what happened? The Lord instructs the prophet Jeremiah to tell the people to marry, have sons and daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters and increase in number there. Do not decrease, Jeremiah 29, 6. It would seem that God views abundance as a blessing. And one of the ways he encourages righteousness in the Old Testament is by this abundance of, of blessing he pours out in growth in prosperity. And so we read in Psalm 92, verses 12 and 13, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of our God. And in the book of Proverbs, God gives instruction on how we can grow. And he basically tells us to increase strength by increasing wisdom and to increase wisdom by being with the wise. Of course, what does that not mean doesn't mean that we should be out seeking the wrong kind of growth we shouldn't be overly impressed with the increase of physical things like wealth and possessions psalms 49 warns against such a thing be not afraid when a man becomes rich when the glory of his house increases for when he dies he will carry nothing away his glory will not go down after him. Death will take from us all possessions we accumulate in the world. So don't be too impressed by possessions. One thing that we can be certain of when it comes to growth is that the kingdom of heaven will grow. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus promised it in the New Testament. In fact, just about every year around Christmas time, we sing of it in Isaiah 9, 7, in which the Lord promised that the kingdom of the Messiah would grow of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus speaks of how his kingdom will grow in fulfillment of this prophecy. He says that it will grow from the smallest seed to the largest plant in the garden. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches, Matthew 13, 31, and 32. The seed did not just fall to the ground and die, but though Jesus was crucified, and buried, 
The grave could not hold him. He was raised again, and the kingdom of God that he began to build did exactly what Jesus prophesied it would do. It began to grow. The book of Acts reveals this to us over and over and over again. If you want to read about the the growth of the early church, one only has to go to the book of Acts, which I preached a whole sermon series through. It took me a year to get through the book of Acts. Okay, I just read about a guy, it took him two and a half years. So be thankful it only took me a year. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, Acts 6, 1 and 7. But the word of God continued to increase and spread, Acts 12, 24. But the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, Acts 13, 49. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power, Acts 19, 20. And so we see numerical growth going on in the New Testament, just as in the Old Testament. So why would it be wrong when you think of growth to think, boy, we need more people? Because the growth that we find that is discussed and urged and prayed for in the New Testament is not just numerical growth. If a church has more people than it did a few years ago, does that equate to being a healthy church? So if if next year we say, oh, you know what, we're averaging 100 people in church, does that mean that we certainly are a healthy church? Not really. Because there's another kind of growth, isn't there? You see, the New Testament idea of growth is not just that there are more people, but people who are actually growing, maturing, and deepening in their faith. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does this growth happen? Well, ultimately, it happens by God's work, meaning that we grow as a body for Christ as God causes growth. According to Colossians 2.19, Christ is the head of whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and its sinews, and it grows as God causes growth. Now, this is a relief for me as a pastor because I know that I don't cause the church to grow. Certainly God can use a pastor, right? But I don't cause it. In fact, six years ago, when I uh, came to First Baptist Church, Washington, I can remember standing up here and saying the words that if you think hiring a pastor is going to cause your church to grow, you're sadly mistaken. Because I can't grow your church. And I remember exactly what I did. I pointed out to all you. I wasn't even the pastor yet. This was in view of a call. And I said, you will make your church As we share God's word. God can use me. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Corinthians. Because they were prone to worship eloquent preachers. And so Paul says to them. 
gives them a little reminder that, hey, I planted the seed, Apollos watered the seed, but God made it grow. Why? So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Jesus taught the same thing when he taught that the growth of the kingdom of God comes from God and does not ultimately depend on us. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a crop that grows while the farmer sleeps. Whether the farmer gets up or not, the crop continues to grow. Jesus is not saying that we should all be lazy and do nothing, but that the growth of the kingdom of God is not ultimately dependent on us. God is committed to ensuring the growth of his church. And Jesus says he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how God causes the growth. This is why when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he doesn't congratulate them on their growth. He doesn't say, oh, wow, look how much you've grown, church. But instead, he thanks God for it. Growth can cause humility and recognition that it's God who gives the growth. We ought to always give thanks for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. When Paul wants a congregation to grow, you know what Paul does? He prays for them. He realizes that growth comes from God. In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians or the Thessalonian church, he prays. Now, many our God and Father himself, or now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Do you see that? And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. What a prayer to pray for a church. Again, Paul, the church in Colossians, he prays that his readers will grow spiritually so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. It's not that we have nothing to do with our own spiritual growth. I'm not saying that we just sit back and do nothing and we're going to grow spiritually. We, in fact, have something to do. 2 Peter 3.18, Peter finishes his letter by encouraging them, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an imperative. He says, grow. He's giving them a command. You need to grow. He says, do this. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2, 2 and 5, 2 through 5. Growing spiritually is a biblical concept. This is an idea that has its foundation in the word of God. It goes as far back as creation itself. And so we've seen this theology of spiritual growth, that it's all through the scripture that we have to grow spiritually. So we have to grow individually and corporately as a body of believers. We need to grow. But how? 
Have you ever wondered that? How do I grow spiritually? I want to grow spiritually, but how do I do it? Well, let's look at the practice of spiritual growth. How do we grow as Christians? What kind of church cultivates spiritual growth among its members? Now, in one sense, that is what we've been looking at this whole series as we've gone through the the marks of a healthy church. But here's the question. How do these marks of a healthy church that we've been looking at affect our growth individually? And how do they affect us corporately as Christians? I believe that each one of them contributes to our following Christ better for the health of the individual Christian, for the good of other Christians, for the health of the church as a whole, and for the good of our witness to non-Christians, and for the glory of God, these marks have a contribution to make uh, to us. That is why we've gone over them, and that's why I've preached through them. So, first, expositional preaching. Expositional preaching, which is, um, if you paid attention, it's not what I'm currently doing right now. Right now it's topical, but expositional preaching must be a mark of a church, a church that has expositional preaching will be a church that encourages Christian growth. Growth when we, If we are going to grow, then how do we grow? We need God's Word. We don't need a bunch of nice little stories filled with rainbows and unicorns and cotton candy. The culture is not going to help you grow. It's not going to tell you what you need to hear. Our hearts will deceive us. Listen to what O.S. Guinness wrote. The exaggerated half-truth about the churches needing to meet needs breeds unintended consequences just as church growth's modern passion for relevance will become its road to irrelevance. So its modern passion for felt needs will turn the church into an echo chamber of fashionable needs that drown out one voice that address real human need below all felt needs. After all, if true needs are a first step towards faith and prayer, false needs are the opposite. As George MacDonald observed, that need, which is no need, is a demon sucking the spring of your life. If we're going to learn what we need most in our lives, turn to God. You need to hear God's word. All of it. You need to hear all of God's word preached expositionally so you don't just hear selective little themes out of the Bible. I can tell you as a pastor, there are things in the Bible that I would rather avoid and not preach. There is no one that happily welcomes every word in God's book. And we may not be uh, in a church where the word of God is preached selectively because you're not right now, may this church right here always have a pastor that will preach God's word to you unapologetically. And as we study God's word together, we see his help and his care for his own throughout history, and we become aware of the beauty of God's plan and the glory of the gospel, and we see how he corrects us. And to be honest, when we hear expositional preaching, we become dependent Not on the preacher, but on the word of God. 
And we are more concerned about this than we are about the preacher. And so when, when I'm away on vacation and someone else is in the pulpit, it's okay. I hope, I hope that you miss me and I hope that you love me like I love you. And it's great when you come up to me and say, Pastor, I sure missed your preaching. I love that. that that's so encouraging to me. But I pray that you love God's word more. I pray that's what you want to hear. Because that's what the church is built on. Hearing the word of God spoken to us as his Holy Spirit uses it in our hearts. Through his word we come to know more of him and of his character. So I would say if you're here this morning and perhaps you're saying, well, I'm I'm looking for a church. Or you're advising someone else who's looking for a church. I would say be careful before joining a church that does not stress expositional preaching or a preacher who does not preach the word of God expositionally or is not committed to preaching all of God's word regardless of how uncomfortable it may make people feel. I would say that when you hear a church talking about felt needs and and this, that, and the other, and that's the theme of their sermons, I would say to you, be incredibly careful because they are not expositionally walking you through the word of God. So expositional preaching. Then we said biblical theology. As we understand more of the truth about God and about ourselves, we grow as Christians. We grow as we come to understand more about his care and his character. And as we read the biblical record of him choosing a people and then working with them through very difficult situations and circumstances, we're encouraged. And when we see the big picture, the grand plan, and the meaning in his word, we begin to grow in our knowledge of him, and we begin to trust him more and more. Well, let's answer this question. How is it that we grow in our ability to trust God? We grow in our ability to trust God through the difficulties that God allows us to go through. But experience is only half of it. That is what gives us the opportunity to trust. But why trust him? We trust him because he's proven himself to be absolutely trustworthy. God has revealed himself throughout his word, throughout history, and it proves him to be worthy of our trust no matter what he might send our way. So we have this biblical theology. And then we said a biblical understanding of the gospel. So as we come to realize our need, we're trained to rely on Christ. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, also wrote a poem about trusting in Christ and growing as a Christian. He said this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. When we begin to have a greater biblical understanding of our state as human beings, we are no longer shocked by the way a non-Christian behaves or might be. I hate terrorism. I hate mass shootings. I hate abortion. I hate rape. 
and all the other ills that we see happen in our society today. But I'm not shocked by it. Because this is how non-Christians are. We must understand how terrible our capacities really are when we don't submit to God. The more we understand of our own brokenness and our own sinful rebellion, we begin to understand the extent of the love of God. I've had people say to me, well, you're, you're a hellfire preacher. Why don't you preach more about God's love? Listen to the love of God. Let me tell you about God's love. You and I are wicked and sinful people and God is holy and just and we have no ability to be holy none whatsoever but in spite of my wickedness in spite of the problem of my terrible sinful rebellion against God in spite of the fact that God's wrath deserves to be rested on me God sent his only son to die in my place and to take all of my filth and all of my sin. Jesus carried it all to the cross of Calvary. He paid the price. He went through the great lengths to reveal his love to us. You see, you don't understand the love without understanding just how sinful your heart really is. You see, the more I understand the reality of my sinful rebellion against a holy God, then I begin to understand God's love revealed to me in Jesus Christ. A church that makes the gospel clear will help you grow as a Christian. It will help you grow in confidence as you know the love of God. You can't help but grow, and you don't understand more and more of what God does for you. You need to grow in that knowledge of who God is. You want to grow as a Christian? Grab a hymnal from the pew and open it up to page 147 and meditate on the words and be amazed of the hymn at the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That will help you grow. Biblical understanding of a gospel. And then we said a biblical understanding of conversion. We begin to realize our own spiritual state and dependence on God for our own Christian life. It doesn't make us indifferent but grateful. It makes us profoundly thankful to God for the mercies He's shown to us and to others. Our hope becomes more certain. We come to realize that our hope is not based on our faithfulness, but it's based on God's faithfulness. And what a wonderful encouragement to anyone who knows that we are sinners, that God loves us out of His own nature of love. And as we begin to recognize our own salvation has the fruit of God's work in our lives, we're not even tempted to feel the wrong kind of pride in our spiritual life because we know from the Bible what conversion is, and we understand that we did not deserve any of it. And we understand more of what a true Christian is and how we become one by God's grace alone. And then we said a biblical understanding of evangelism. The lack of spiritual growth in those people who call themselves Christians is often because they've been wrongly evangelized. We like to lead people who are not Christians to think they really are Christians. 
We think that if we just advertise a little more and we do the right cool thing and, and we be nice to people, then our churches are surely going to grow because we're hip and cool and we're nice. And then our church is going to grow, right? For sure, maybe they will grow numerically, but that's not going to convert anyone. And I'm not saying that we should not advertise or be nice to people. That isn't, I'm not saying go around here being mean to everybody. That's not what I'm saying. Don't do that, please. Pastor gave me the right to be mean to everybody. But evangelism is more than those things. The church is not a booster club. We're telling people a serious message about their sinful condition before a holy God and about the tremendous news that new life is found in Jesus Christ. And we're inviting them to enter into the life by a desperate means of repentance and faith. And when we begin to understand that the Bible teaches about evangelism, we will trust God in helping us to spread the good news. We will also be more motivated to obedience as we realize our duty is not to convert anyone. So much freedom in that. I have to tell the truth about Jesus and love them and pray for them. I'm simply called to be faithful in the message, and that brings a wonderful freedom. And when we understand that God's work in regeneration is completely on him. It encourages us to trust God. And then we set a biblical understanding of church membership. We talked about living the Christian life, being committed to one another. Dealing, by dealing with each other, we're forced to deal with the areas of our lives that we would otherwise perhaps avoid because our commitment to love one another. We pray and we reflect on those areas. And we repent in areas where we need to repent, and through our commitments and responsibilities as church members, we learn even more of what a true Christian is. And this nurturing faith and investing in the lives of one another. That's one of the reasons why God doesn't call us to run this Christian life alone, to go on this race alone. Being rooted in a church encourages accountability with one another. It helps us in many ways. It grows us as Christians. And then we said a biblical understanding of church discipline, the thing that nobody wants to talk about. One of the unintended consequences when churches neglect discipline is that it gets much harder to produce disciples. A church that does not practice discipline breeds an unclear example and confused models. And so we hear things like this, well, Mr. So-and-so, he's been a member of the church forever, and look at what he does. Well, yeah, but Mr. So-and-so's on all the committees in the church, or Mr. So-and-so runs the church, or Mr. So-and-so gives all kinds of money to the church. We couldn't survive without him. Now, I don't think any of you like weeds in your garden if you garden, right? You're not, you don't go out to your garden and oh, look at that nice-looking weed. I'm so glad that I have that weed in my garden. Okay, I, I seriously doubt that's you. Because Why? They have bad effects on the rest of plants. God's plan for the local church does not encourage us to leave the weeds unchecked. It doesn't say, oh, by the way, see the weed? Just leave it unchecked. He intends for his glory that the church be composed of imperfect people, which is you and I. But he intends for this group of imperfect people to be a people who love him and in whose lives he can work to make them more holy. 
For the good of the one disciplined and for the good of the other Christians who, who see discipline as a warning and for the health of the church as a whole and for the good of our witness to non-Christians and for the glory of God, we will be helped to grow as we practice church discipline. And then next week, we will look at a biblical understanding of church leadership. As Christians, we'll be greatly helped when we have a biblical understanding of church leadership. As God brings people into our lives, he's called to be spiritual leaders. We gain practical role models and godly vision. We'll consider that more next week. So what are the hopes? What are the hopes for growth? Before moving to the importance, I want us to look at the hopes. I have for my own ministry, maybe some areas I need to work on. Hope number one, pastoral visitation. My role as a pastor, I hope specifically and probably slowly but surely to be able to regularly visit people in their homes. Can I just share with you one of my biggest struggles as a pastor? I'm a personal guy. I love to hang out with people. If you give me an opportunity to hang out with you, I'll, sometimes you might have to say, hey, it's time for you to leave. You might have to say that to me because I'll hang out forever if you give me that opportunity. But I don't like to go uninvited. In the old times, that was, that was standard practice. You just show up at someone's house, it was all right. It's not the case anymore. My hopes would be to personally interview every potential member about their understanding of the gospel and hear their testimony of becoming a Christian. I like to gain an understanding of people beyond Sunday morning. I like to ask people about their lives and how things are going. What's going on spiritually in their lives? That's my hopes. But I also hope that we'd grow together as a church. I hope as a church we'll grow together that we will adopt a church membership covenant. One in which we will all sign and be held accountable to. In which we pledge to care for one another. I would like to see us use a membership covenant in our members meetings. And that we would read it together. I would like for us to express our commitment to and for each other. As a part of our commitment to God. I want us to understand that growth as a Christian is not just the responsibility of the individual, but that the members of the church are to have a responsibility to one another. The covenant I've proposed speaks about what we do to help one another grow as Christians. We will do it imperfectly, no doubt. No doubt about it. But we'll work together and pray together and walk together and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together and endeavor to bring up that the Lord gives us in His will and way anything that we need to bring up, that we will rejoice one another with one another, that we will cry with one another, that we will seek to carefully work together in ministry and contribute to the expense of the ministry with one another. And the need for the gospel to go to all nations, we will understand that need, one another. I hope that we would pledge to help one another grow in our faith. Now let me take a moment and share with you the importance of spiritual growth. Is it important? Yes. That's how we give testimony to God. When we see a church as members that are growing in Christ-likeness, who gets the credit? Well, we've already seen God made it grow. As Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits, First Peter 2.12. We 
when we work to promote Christian discipleship and growth, we're going to bring glory to God, not ourselves. That's how God will make himself known to the world. A healthy church has a pervasive concern with church growth, not just growing its members, but growing members. A church that's filled with growing Christians is the kind of church growth that I want to pastor. One of the greatest things that could ever be said about me as a pastor is not, oh, that we gained a lot of people. That'd be fine. But that's not what I'm looking for. One of the greatest things would be that we learn so much about God. Because then I've done my job. And as I said earlier, some people think that you can be a baby Christian your whole lifetime. It's not the case. Church growth's not optional. It's not extra for the super spiritual. It is a sign of life. When you see a dead tree, you know it's dead. When you see a dead animal, you know it's dead. When something stops growing, it dies. And we might do well to remember that only living things swim upstream. What is dead just goes along with the current. Paul had a hope that the Corinthians would grow in their Christian faith. He hoped that the Ephesians would grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. It's tempting as a pastor to reduce the church to manageable little statistics Look at attendance and baptism and giving and membership. So I can say, well, growth is this tangible number. Look, we had 64. Now we have 67. But statistics fall short of the true growth that Paul describes and that God desires. So rather than thinking of growth as a linear graph where we record increasing, declining, or stayed the same measurements where we record dollars given and books read services attended perhaps it's better for us to think of Christian growth as a video game where each day you have a fresh challenge to live that day as a Christian Jonathan Edwards in his treaty concerning religious affections made note that only certain observable signs of Christian growth is a life of increasing holiness rooted in Christian self-denial the church should be marked by a vital concern for this kind of increasing godliness in the lives of its members. Good influences in a coveted community of believers can be tools in God's hands for growing His people. And as God's people are built up, and as they grow in holiness and self-giving love, they should improve in their ability to administer discipline and to encourage discipleship. The church has an obligation to grow. God's people in grace. If our churches are only places where only the pastor's thoughts are taught instead of God's word being taught, where God is questioned more than God is worshipped, where the gospel is diluted and evangelism is perverted, where church membership is meaningless and a cult of personality is allowed to grow around the pastor or members in the church, then you will not find a community that is cohesive or edifying. And such a church will not glorify God. 
Growth is so concerning for me because how many of us have seen large churches with hundreds and even thousands of members who never come? And hundreds of those who do attend seem to not really care much about God in the first place. And in any church, there will be many nice people who live nice little moral lives. And we can look at them and go, boy, that person sure is moral. But then there will be those people who actually love the Lord. Who come to church because they love the Lord. Who share the gospel because they love the Lord who read the Bible because they love the Lord, who memorize Scripture because they love the Lord, who are willing to sign a church covenant because they love the Lord. And they will stick out like a sore thumb from everyone else, and they will seem different from the rest of the church. Let me ask you, why are churches like this? What has happened when people who really live like Christians seem unusual, even compared to other church members? And the answer, God's Word. God's Word makes a difference. And if we are to grow as individual believers and as churches, we must sit under the Word of God. We must pray the Word of God. We must ask for the Holy Spirit to plant in us and to weed the gardens of our hearts. It's not optional. It's vital because it indicates life. Things that are alive grow. Which leads to the final point. What if we don't grow? So what if we look at our life and we say, well, I'm not growing. What if we look at our church and say, we're not growing? Does that mean we're not a Christian? You might be thinking, well, that's harsh to say to someone, to say, if you're not growing, you're not a Christian. Some would argue and they say, well, they're just a carnal Christian. You know, Paul talks about those carnal Christians in 1 Corinthians. He writes and says, Brother, I cannot address you as as um, Christian, but as worldly. The KJV uses carnal, mere infants in Christ. Who are these people? Are they some sort of middle category? Are they people who have Jesus in their lives, but Jesus is not on the throne of their heart? That just sounds weird. On the one hand, you have Christians who have Christ as Lord and he's, he's on the throne of their life. And the other side, you have non-Christians. But who wants to argue that you have this middle category where Christ is in a person's life, but he's just not ruling their life. He's not on the throne of their life. Surely these are the carnal Christians. I believe the more natural way to read it is Paul is shaming his readers by speaking of these self-confessed Christians as being worldly. Paul is using an oxymoron, which is the joining of two contradictory words. So in this case, saying carnal Christian is like saying hot ice. It doesn't make any sense. 
It's not supposed to make any sense. Paul's telling his readers, knock it off. You're living differently than your profession. You're saying that you're a Christian, but you live completely separate like that. And you can't do that. Who straddles the fence? And if you're, someone says, oh, I can straddle the fence, guess what? Eventually you're going to fall. And it ain't going to feel too good. It hurts. You have to be on one side or the other. Sadly, many people have been duped by some well-meaning Christian misinterpreting this verse to convince them that they are some sort of truly saved person or they really are a Christian. You're just really a Christian. You're just, you're just, you're just carnal. And even though they have never truly repented and never truly believed, it's no wonder the lives of many who profess to be Christians are a flat-out mess when the churches are a part of, of, of this confused idea on basic matters of what it is to be a Christian. Last night, I was watching a show with my wife, and, and it, they had, this is the pastors and youth pastors or whatever part of it, and they had these, these uh, gospel singers and youth pastors and some rabbis. And as they're talking to each one of them, having a conversation, not one of them said anything about Jesus Christ. I mean, I understand the rabbis. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. But neither of the other two said anything about Jesus. Said, well, why do you want to be a youth pastor? Oh, I just, I wanted to give girls a safe space. so confused on what it even means to be a Christian. Church, there is no growth. There is no life. And you may not hear this anywhere else, but you'll hear it right here. There is no life. You're dead. You're not dying. You're dead. And if you're dead... You're not a Christian, carnal or otherwise. And if you look at your life and you go, there's, there's no growth in my life. I don't, I don't love Jesus. I don't want to please Jesus. I don't read the Bible. I don't study the Bible. I, have no, uh, I, I don't want to pray. I don't want to share the gospel. I don't want to do any of this. Then you are dead. You're not a Christian. And you are in a terrible, terrible spot. Because maybe you've been going to church your whole life. Maybe you've attended church. Maybe you are in church leadership and you are a dead non-believer and you are on a one-way ticket straight to hell and I'm not going to dupe you into thinking you're saved. There is no life you are not living. I would ask you this morning to stop and consider what does it mean to be a Christian. Does it mean you're perfect? But it does mean your heart is seeking the Lord. And if you are a Christian, it is because God, by His grace in your life, has grown a desire in you to live a life that pleases Him more and more. And that growth is a sign of spiritual life, and it's a mark of a healthy church. So I ask you this morning to examine your life and ask Am I growing? And then you say, I am growing. Then examine our church and ask, are we 
growing, not numerically, but spiritually. And if we're not, ask yourself this question. Why? And what can I do to ensure that to happen? Because we just walked through what it takes. Let's close in prayer.